Morning. Good morning. Thank you, Charlene. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for September 9th, 9-9-2015. We're back in the swing of things, and um, we have a, a, a member of our of our uh, program, Office of Medical Education speaking today. We've got a couple of presentations. I'm full of computers here. But first, I want to um, remind us that we're in the thick of things. Next week, we have Alan Budney from the Department of Psychiatry, uh, Addiction Treatment and Research Program, speaking the changing landscape of cannabis, what's real and what's not. We'll have an um, uh, update on the state of Chad. Uh, looks like I'm on the schedule for the 23rd of September. Uh, with Sam uh, Casella and Johanna Bellavo as, as featured uh, presenters, and Safely Doing Less by Alan Schroeder, who is from Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, invited by Sean Ralston on the 30th. I want to share a kudos, get us back into that habit. And um, this kudos is not in the room, but you can thank him, I think. We had, a, I believe, a junior um, new attending, and we had a a 25-week um, or a very young or low birth weight baby born in the ICN, and, and one Tyler Hartman, who is no more than six days status post ACL reconstruction surgery, came in to assist with that delivery. I don't know whether he had his brace on or not. I keep bugging him. If you see him, he should have his brace on. But, but Tyler really went above and beyond being on call less than a week after surgery and having to come in and being here all night. And then the next morning, I found him on a telehealth visit with a baby in the TLC program. So um, much thanks. And if you see Tyler going around, uh, thank him. Um, an example of above and beyond, which we have many days around here. He's in Portugal. He's in Portugal? Okay. So I'll try to remember when he comes back. And next time I'll check before I thank him to make sure he's in the room. But it was just, a, it was just last month. So I'm going to introduce Julie after we have our sign-in, because we all have to learn how to get our CME credits for being here today. So, so first we have Marcus, Marcus is going to come and whip out your cell phones, and we'll get ourselves credited. Good morning, everybody. I'm Marcus Jenkin. I'm here from the Center for Learning and Professional Development to introduce you to mobile and electronic sign-in. Here with me today are my colleagues, Teresa Gilbane, and outside are Wendy Murphy and Kara Clark, who will be around at the end of the session to help out if anybody has any questions or technical difficulties. Um, Paper-based sign-in has been retired for Pediatrics Grand Rounds in 12 other series at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and over the next 12 to 18 months, we'll be retiring um, paper-based sign-in for all series here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, so moving ahead. What do you need in order to make this work for you? First, most important, you need to have a Continuing Education for Professionals website account. Uh, most of you, if not all of you, already have one. If you've already attended a Grand Rounds or regularly scheduled series, you're all set. Um, if you want to make use of the mobile sign-in functionality, and we really hope you will because it kind of expedites the process here, uh, you need to have your mobile phone number registered to your Continuing Education for Professionals account. You need the activity code. The activity code is a four-character session-specific code. Uh, it's unique to the session. It is outside uh, on the pop-up card, and also if you forget it or are not able to access it, the RASL, as we call them, or Regularly Scheduled Series Administrative Liaison, 
uh, is able to provide this to you. How does it work? Pretty easy, really. Um, you're going to text that four-character code to that phone number. Uh, that phone number never changes. We'd recommend you take that number and put it into your phone as a contact. You'll be using it at other um, regularly scheduled series as time goes on. We can assist you with putting it in as a contact if you need help with that later, uh, later on today. If you don't have a phone, you can still sign in. It's not a problem. You just have to go to that website address, um, sign into your account that we've talked about before. You'll see a mobile tab appear at the top. You just take that four character code, you're gonna put it in that field right there and you're gonna click save and you'll be registered and automatically your credits will be processed on your transcript. No paperwork, no waiting around, it's just all there for you. So you can give it a shot, you can try it now, you can try it after the session, you can try it uh, up until 48 hours. You do have 48 hours to sign in. And if you need help, if you text and you get a message that you could not process your, um, your uh, request or the system couldn't process your request, please call us, please email us for assistance. We are there to help you. We've got our quick uh, tips cards here with all the information you need. Uh, with the frequently asked questions page um, kind of walks you through it please take one of those and refer to it but definitely give us a call or email us if you have any questions today's code for this session is i36q it is not case sensitive you do not have to worry about that And that's it. Thank you very much. If you run into any issues or have any questions, please contact us. We will be here after the session if you run into any issues. So please find uh, the one of the four of us will be just hanging out and we'll be able to help you out with any technical issues you have. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions, Marcus? All right. Thank you. Shirley, do you want this in the middle or right in front? Okay. So everyone put your cell phones away. You've had them out, now you can put them away. We're delighted to welcome Julie Kim to the to the podium for Grand Rounds today. Julie is um, received her BA from Wesleyan University and Masters in Fine Arts at Brown University, completing an MD and PhD. So there's a master's, a bachelor, MD and PhD from West Virginia University School of Medicine. Uh, she came to us after pediatric training, uh, like Adam Weinstein at Yale, and also Jack uh, Van Hoff. So we have a, a Yale pipeline going in, in our specialties in hematology oncology with both her residency in general pediatrics and her fellowship in an accelerated five-year time frame. Uh, it is appropriate that we have our uh, technology-enabled sign-in for Grand Rounds here, because Julie is a, one of our associate program directors for the residency, and I understand is the person who is making sure that um, we are interacting in social networking and cyberspace and inclusive of um, our candidates reveal themselves in cyberspace on their Facebook pages and the like, and so keeping us aware of those developments uh, um, is important. Julie is an assistant professor of pediatrics here at the Geisel School of Medicine, and just recently rotated off as our representative on faculty council? No. No, Adam signed it off. So, so we had an all-Yale team for a while, but um, 
But Adam, she continues as our senior representative to faculty council. So, but I'll um, be ro rotating off like in the next year or so. So somebody else, feel free to step in. <laughs> so she's well aware of uh, the effects going on today, and she does conduct our sickle cell program with a significant component in the southern part of the state. So, um, oh, this isn't on, Julie. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. So let me make sure I know how to use this thing, yep. So I'm going to talk about sickle cell disease today. And uh, there's actually been a lot of changes in the last 10 years since I've even been here. So um, we have patients who are, have been born well before, or well after some of these changes have happened. So um, a lot of people who've, the older people in the room, not the residents per se, but will have been trained in a different fashion and not know about some of these treatments unless this is something that you're interested about. So one of the things that I like about this picture is there's an Asian-American or Asian-type baby. It's not my child, by the way. Um, <laughs> but it it's a good reminder that patients with sickle cell disease aren't all looking like African-American kids. So we, in even our DHMC population of the patients that we take care of, we have a bunch of kids who do not have that typical African-American appearance. Um, we have one child who is father's, uh, father's from Puerto Rico, mom is from Texas and that kid has sickle cell disease. We have another child whose mother is half Filipino, half Native American, something else. The father is partly Hispanic and partly somewhere down the road has some relatives from Cape Verde. Um, we have another patient whose mother is African American, but the father actually, when the baby was born, uh, who's Caucasian, tried to say that this isn't my child because he, he lived in St. Johnsbury and has been white all his life. So there's lots of different things out there, um, lots of different patients out there that do not look like your typical African-American sickle cell patient. So keep that in mind when you see these patients. I do not have uh, the fortunate luxury of earning any, else, any other money anywhere else, so I have no disclosures. I will be talking about some FDA off-label um, medications and that's just because in pediatrics, a lot of the medications we use, particularly in hematology and oncology, are off-label and not F necessarily FDA approved. So where are we, what are we going to do today? Um, we're going to have a quick review about the pathophysiology, all the things that you kind of need to remember about sickle cell disease. It's not the most important part of this talk, but what I want to focus on mostly is the natural changing history, the changing history of what's happened in the last 10 years and how that's affecting our patients currently, what is their management now. And also, what does their future look like? So things have really changed. So this is part of that quick review. Just a reminder for everyone, um, sickle cell disease is a beta globin disorder. Uh, it's a defect. What happens is there's a missense mutation that occurs in the chromosome 11. Um, and this causes transcript transcription and then translation of the wrong or aberrant amino acid. So instead of having the glutamic acid that you're supposed to have for a normal hemoglobin A, hemoglobin A is the, what we consider the typical hemoglobin. Uh, in classic sickle cell disease, hemoglobin S disease, we have the valine substitution instead. What this causes is a huge conformational change of the hemoglobin molecule, the structure. So you, generally, the typical hemoglobin A is this ball-like structure, and that makes sense because the ball is that sphere-shaped is what travels through the vessels. In sickle hemoglobin, this thing, this thing stretches out. The molecule stretches out and becomes flatter and longer. The, the thing that you don't really see here is just to fit this on the slide, this sickle hemoglobin is actually drawn in 50% proportion. So in real, in not real life, but 
uh, what would really happen is this sickle cell molecule becomes about twice as long as the regular hemoglobin, and it becomes much skinnier. So as you can imagine, that's much harder to travel through the vessels than if you're the, the ball-shaped molecule. This is classic sickle cell disease. When we think of sickle cell disease, we think of generally hemoglobin SS disease. Now, that's a misnomer, too, because there's a lot of sickle cell disease that isn't SS disease. So we have all kinds of sickle cell diseases, and no one really thinks of these other ones. And sometimes we actually have patients who have one of these things that are inadvertently labeled as having a trait, and that's not, that's not true, actually. So we have SS with alpha-thal, S with no beta-thal, S with some beta-thal that's mutated, S with this thing called delta-beta-thal. Um, we have SC, SD, SE, all these different things. Uh, this is high um, hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, so it's an SS patient who has a lot of fetal hemoglobin, a lot of hemoglobin F. And then we have SO even. We're actually learning more and more about these different types of um, sickle cell variants as we start to do universal screening uh, of all the infants that are born. And we're starting to recognize that some of these things, like SE, for a long time, people that said, oh, if your patient is SE, this patient doesn't have sickle cell disease. Well, as we're starting to understand the natural history, it does turn out that these patients do end up having sickle cell disease. They just don't present with the typical complications until they're older in age. The interesting thing, the reason why this was thought to be a trait initially, is because some of these disorders or mutations, if you are born with homozygous, S, uh, homozygous CC disease or homozygous EE disease, you're actually pretty normal. You, know, you don't really have any complications you, unless you have some severe physiologic strain. And sometimes in those situations, you can't tell if that physiologic strain is worse because of this or because uh, whatever physiological strain that they're undergoing. The short story is here for this. Is if at any point you see a patient that has an S on their newborn screen or somewhere down the road and something that's not A, they have sickle cell disease. So S and something else is, is always sickle cell disease because these patients have the propensity to have complications from their sickle, the sickle part of things. Um, the severity could vary. So somebody who's SE might not have that many complications until they're older. And we actually don't see the complications in pediatric, the pediatric population. That starts when they're about their 20s. Or it could be pretty severe, like these SD patients. We actually have two SD patients who we don't really know that much about because we didn't know the SD patients existed for a while. Um, since I've been here now for eight years, we've had two patients with SD, and both of those patients have presented with severe disease, just like the SS patients. And that's becoming more well-known as we go along. Uh, another quick review is what does sickle cell look like on the smear? You see here these, you can you even see this dot, the red dot? Um, you see sickle, sickle cell forms here. This is a nucleated red cell. This is a Howell Jolly body, this, this dot right down over here. When you see a Howell Jolly body, that indicates that your spleen is not working. The spleen is like a giant vacuum cleaner, and it's supposed to take off these remains. These are kind of crenated remains of red cells that are supposed to be cleaned off by the spleen. If you see those, that the spleen is not doing their job anymore. And then here we have a, a megaloblast. This is a multinucleated um, white cell, and then target cell. We see this frequently, this megaloblast or these multinucleated um, white cells, frequently in the sickle cell population uh, because of some mild folate deficiency. Whether It's controversial whether you actually give patients folate because there's a lot of folate already in the diet, and sometimes giving folate doesn't really do much to change that. A reminder of how a sickle cell is inherited is an autosomal recessive disease. So you actually need to inherit one trait from the one parent and the other trait from the other parent. 
So, uh, and this, the traits, again, as a reminder, don't both have to be SS. One of them has to be S, and the other has to be something that's not A. Um, so, as you can see, in this situation with recessive uh, inheritance, one out of four patients will have, be affected with their sickle cell disease. 50% will be carriers, and one out of four will um, not have any effects at all. I always have to remind parents of this. I actually have parents who are like, well, I have four kids. Only one of them has sickle cell disease. And, you know, this, the typical story you guys hear about as well. Where is sickle cell? Most people think of sickle cell disease globally as being in that malaria belt, and that's definitely true. So we know that the high percentage of burden globally is in sub-Saharan Africa where there is high levels of malaria, and it's evolutionarily pressured to, to um, survive if you have sickle trait because it doesn't allow for malaria to procreate and do all the things it's supposed to do in the red cell as well. Um, in some parts of the sub-Saharan Africa, uh, like Nigeria, actually 4% of Nigerians have sickle cell disease. That's huge, 4%. In the United States, we have about 90 to 100,000 Americans affected. We're not ex actually sure of that number, and we'll talk about why we're not 100% sure about that number in the, a couple slides from now. This compares to 100,000 Americans compares to uh, 30,000 Americans who have C CF. Um, so this is much more prevalent than cystic fibrosis. You can see some numbers here, one out of every 500 African Americans, one out of 36,000 Hispanics. Um, here's Asians, one out of 11,000-plus Asians, Native Americans, 2,700, and Caucasians, 58,000. Now, these are all reported self-reports, so people describe what they are. They check off their own box, basically. So um, if you did genetic studies and tried to figure out where people came from, the numbers may look very different. Sickle cell trait occurs in about one out of 12 um, African Americans, so that's not that small. And actually, it's creating some serious problems when it comes to NCAA uh, eligibility for sports, as you know. So for patients who have trait, or trait for any matter, what do you guys do with these patients? Let me go back here. What do you do with these patients? And the reason I'm going to talk about this briefly is you do not send them to hematology. <laughs> so, so actually, uh, if you look at the newborn screening handouts that come when a patient is one of, one of your patients is born with trait, it doesn't say anything about sending into hematology. It says genetic counseling. So the important thing is that you guys can do the genetic counseling. You do not need to refer them to myself or Sarah or Jack. You can do it yourself and um, give them these handouts. And there's actually a bunch of handouts on the newborn uh, screening site about the different types of trait that you can give to these parents. In the United States, where are all of our sickle cell patients living? Now, if you look here, this light color uh, indicates, and this is not a surprise for anybody who, who thinks of metropolitan versus rural, that kind of thing. These light areas are less than 500 patients uh, in sickle cell with that state. Now, 500 is a huge number because by the 2008 census in New Hampshire, we only had 74 patients listed. So that's well under 500. Um, Vermont was much less. They had 28 patients listed that's way less than 500. Uh, so you can't always tell. 500 would be a lot for New Hampshire, basically. Uh, newborn screening, when we did three years of analysis of our newborn screens just to see how many babies were being born with sickle cell disease, New Hampshire had 47. The interesting number here is 2005. That's not that long ago. That's actually when New Hampshire, which was the last state in the country, to do universal newborn screening. So. Um, we, that's our distinction here. Even Vermont, who has way less, 16, was doing it well before we were, a good 10-plus years before we were. 
The other thing is this number is probably, this, two, this uh, 2008 census numbers are probably low. Because I, from our population here, we are treating a bunch of kids who come from other places. And a lot of these kids are undocumented, actually. So I'm sure that our number is more than 78 or 74, because we know we have undocumented um, families who are being treated and getting um, treatment here. Quick review about what the sickle cell disease does. Whenever I see this, I think of that head, shoulders, knees, and toes song. <laughs> Basically, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. It'll ex affect everything in between. Uh, the things that we worry about are the things like the brain, the lung. Actually, we worry about all of these things. Um, what we can see here on this picture is this on this side are a list of all the sickle cell complications that we know of. This is their uh, relative frequency by age. So the darker, the bigger this dark green line is, is the higher frequency. And this red outline is the pediatric years. What I've circled here are the scary, life-threatening, severely life-altering things that could happen to kids with sickle cell disease. And these are emergent. These aren't chronic things that happen. They're fine one day. These are kids who are fine one day, and then they're trying to go to the next world like an hour later. Um, all of these things happen in the pediatric population. These Chronic scary things um, generally do not happen in the adult population. So splenic sequestration, acute chest, infections, um, airway obstruction problems, and this is all kind of goes along with that acute chest, and stroke. So these are things that happen in the pediatric population. But we're doing much better. Even though these scary things happen to our kids, we're actually pretty good at treating our kids and getting them through childhood. So in the United States, we can get 94% of our patients through childhood successfully. Um, the UK, we're not the best in this. The UK is doing it at 99%. In Africa, where the big majority of our patients, or of the world's patient with sickle cell disease live, is really doing a not very good job, 10%. Um, I was talking to Tiffany, and she was saying she didn't know any kid who survived when she was in Rwanda. She didn't see any survivors of sickle cell disease. Why is it that the US is not as good as the UK? So I actually went to a conference where um, there was a woman there who spoke, who talked about, she was in the Foreign Service. She talked about her experience with sickle cell disease and going to different countries and receiving care. And one of the things that she was very blunt about is that the United States, it's actually harder to access care than in the, U in the UK. The UK has this National Health Service. They have visitors who come to your house routinely. They can detect when you have a problem beforehand, and you can get your medications easily. So here we have prior authorizations, all these things. So no wonder. They're doing a little bit better than we are. So it's, it gives us something to think about and something to improve upon. Life expectancy with sickle cell disease greatly improving over time. This I find an amazing slide because when I was born, which is this part of life, um, a child who was uh, alive at the time that I was born, was only the life expectancy was age 10. That's not very long. In, in my short lifetime, short, I'll say, um, that has improved by 40 years. So we know that in about 2012, this uh, life expectancy for patients with sickle cell disease was approaching 50. So in my lifetime, they went from 10 to 50. That's huge. Um, there's not very many diseases that can have, show that kind of improvement. This is still a huge discrepancy. So right now in 2012, all Americans, the average lifespan was 78 years. And we're talking about 50 years here. So the gap's narrowing, but it's still not very close. And it's not an acceptable number, certainly. <laughs> what has happened in this time period that's made this possible? Um, there was better awareness of sickle cell disease. There was the starting of prophylactic penicillin, which we'll talk about. And that made a huge difference, as you can see. Also between here are some uh, differences in vaccinations, and I'll show that to you. There's something called hydroxyurea, which we'll talk about. 
and then use of transfusions to try to prevent strokes. And we'll talk about these things as we go along. In terms of vaccinations, the pediatric population has been very lucky and have, has been able to benefit from the development of new vaccines. So in 1984, which again, I look at this, I'm like, 84, that's not really that long ago. A lot of us, have, that's really not that long ago, actually. <laughs> 1984, uh, pneumococcal vaccination was developed and became widely available. We started using it. 1988, Hib vaccine, so that made a huge drop just from pneumococcal. And then we developed the, uh, there was the development of pneumococcal, the seven-valent vaccination. All of these things, this is 2000. Does anyone remember when meningococcus was developed? I mean, we forget. Meningococcus was 2006, so that was only about 10 years ago. So the numbers have improved even with the development of new, uh, the meningococcus vaccine. But still, this is per 100,000 children. When we look at this, this number, and what's not listed on here is what happens to all, to average Americans, all of the Americans that don't have sickle cell disease. And this is by age. Even at this time point here, the rate of invasive pneumococcal disease for patients who had sickle cell disease is still 10 times higher for kids than it is for the rest of the pediatric population. This part hasn't changed, actually, because we haven't developed anything new when it comes to pneumococcal uh, infections. Uh, at this time point in 2000, before we had the meningococcal vaccinations, kids with uh, sickle cell disease were 50 times more likely to get meningococcal disease compared to their counter pediatric counterparts that didn't have meningococcus. Now we're doing much better than that, but with the development of vaccines, this still doesn't cover every single strain of meningococcus or pneumococcus or haemophilus, so we're still having, seeing more patients with sickle cell disease um, getting these infections than are their pediatric counterparts. So that brings us to about here. We've done, going back to this too, Actually, the, the, the other thing that came out of this study is the um, universal newborn screening made no difference, which is interesting, on the mortality of sickle cell kids. It helped you define, define who had sickle cell disease, but it didn't make any difference in the overall mortality rates. And probably that's because the, the number of patients who do not look like the typical African-American um, sickle cell patients is relatively small. So there was probably selective screening that was going on. They were picking up the majority of them. And then the small amount that weren't getting picked up before didn't have a big enough significant uh, statistical difference to make such of an impact. What comes next? Hydroxyurea. So hydroxyurea, if you look here, it's, it's showing up in the adult population, primarily kind of in the mid to late 80s when this started. So what is hydroxyurea? We love hydroxyurea. It is a medication that you can take orally, and it's cheap. So in the US, they come in 500 milligram capsules. These are the capsules. Unfortunately, it only comes in a single size, 500 milligrams um, per capsule. And it's 50 cents a day to, pay, to buy this. If you didn't have insurance, you could pay out of pocket 50 cents a day and be treated with this medication. Why aren't we treating all of our kids with this? Because even though it's 50 cents a day, it only comes in this single 500 milligram capsule. Um, and you need to be, the recommended starting dose is 20 milligrams per kilogram. So before you can actually even take one of these capsules, you have to be 25 kilograms. Um, so that's, that's not your infant patient. That's actually some, adolescents are probably smaller than that, depending, you know. So uh, it, you, to do this, you actually need to be pretty big and compounding. We don't, New Hampshire and Vermont has no requirement to compound this medication for our infant patients. So we have a bunch of kids who could probably benefit from this, but the price for compounding is out of pocket $400. So because that's per month. 
So we have a lot of patients who are excluded from this just because of the cost. But again, this was, it's a great medication. It works very well. Um, when we get a patient who's big enough to use it, we'll ask the parents to split the capsules in half, which again is no easy task, and try to give half a capsule here, half a capsule there. But uh, there are some problems with that too, which we'll get to. So what does hydroxyurea do? Hydroxyurea has actually been around since the 1800s. In the um, mid-1900s, we figured out it worked for treating leukemia, pa leukemia patients because it suppressed the bone marrow. Well, that's kind of how we're using it to treat our sickle cell patients. So it does a couple of things. Um, you might not be able to see this so well from the back because it's so dark. It actually increases hemoglobin F. So it increases the amount of fetal hemoglobin that's being produced by your bone marrow. If you have more fetal hemoglobin, just by nature, you only have 100%. If your percentage of hemoglobin F goes up, your percentage of hemoglobin S, that's the sickle hemoglobin, goes down. So if you have less S, you have less of the problems. At the same time, just as this treats the leukemias because it decreases the white cells, it decreases platelets also. These are problems, having a high white count, high platelet count, are actually problems for the sickle cell patients because they naturally have a higher white count and have higher platelet counts than the rest of the population. So it is not uncommon to see a child who's not being treated with hydroxyurea to have a white count of 18,000, for example. Um, and that could be their baseline. And platelet counts of 500, 600,000. That's just their baseline. Uh, having a white count that high, it's inflammatory. So having this kind of inflammation, chronic inflammation going on, having a lot of platelets just makes the vasculature sticky and at risk for in, in, inflaming the inflammation even more. So by reducing these numbers, you can reduce the inflammation, the inflammatory response. You can also reduce the stickiness of the vasculature. Uh, and now, because it's easier for things to pass through, it's easier for the blood to pass through. You have less hemoglobin S, more hemoglobin F, so less big, those big ginormous molecules are going through, and you have the more of the round-shaped molecules going through. So you have less membrane damage overall. The, all of this together leads to better hemoglobin counts because your red cells are not being chewed up so frequently now. You also have less thrombosis, which has also been a problem for our sickle cell patients. The overall outcome is you have improved oxygenation, more hemoglobin, decreased inflammation. So all of these effects all come from this simple 50 cents a day medication hydroxyurea. There's been a lot of hydroxyurea research. Um, there's been actually, in the adult population, about 30 years of research. It started. Actually, hydroxyurea was not approved for adult sickle cell until about the late, uh, mid, early 2000s. But people started to realize short, in the late 80s or, or early 80s that it was increasing fetal hemoglobin. So they started doing research then. There was a lot of phase one and two trials in the 80s and 90s. But the pediatric trials didn't really start until 2000. Uh, and the pediatric trials that actually looked at efficacy didn't really start until 2006, and we didn't get any results from them until 2011. That's five years ago. That's not very long that we've been doing this. Um, so in two th around 2000, we started collecting patients for phase one and phase two trials. Now phase one and phase two, this is not looking to see if it's working, it's just looking to see how does it get metabolized by these kids, what are the pr proper dose, and is it safe to give for these kids. So. In 2000, early 2000, we figured out, yes, we can give hydroxyurea. We can dose them appropriately. It's safe to give. These kids, we can monitor their toxicities. It's fine to do. Uh, in 2005, we started looking to enroll patients in an efficacy trial. So it's the first time we're looking to see, does hydroxyurea make any difference? And that's in 2005. 
the, the names for sickle cell trials have been great in pediatrics. It's really fun to look at the names. So hug kids, that's hydroxyurea kids. Q-soft, the kids population was five to 15 years of age. Um, Q-soft was, uh, was the nine months to 28 months age. And then there's baby hug. This is six months, or this is nine months to 18 months of age. So again, the ages aren't chronologic, but this is what they could recruit for at the time. Um, and I can understand the difficulty in recruiting. I can't imagine being a parent and saying, do you want to try out this drug? We don't know if it's safe for your kid, but we, will, we want to put your kid on it. There's not very many patients or parents who are willing to do that. So it did take a while. So what did we find out? Now this is from the Hughes-Soft study. Now the Hughes-Soft study, this is that one that's the phase one and two trial. Again, it didn't look at efficacy. It just looked to see if it was safe to give. But we realized, or the researchers realized, not me personally, but people realized that there is some efficacy that's being shown. We don't, the study was not powered to look at efficacy, so we can only make some guesstimations. Uh, what they found out from this Hughes-Soft extension study was that patients who were treated with hydroxyurea could actually restore or preserve their splenic function. So up here we see a seven-month-old baby. This is a spleen scan. And the spleen, the only, it's not working that great because it's really supposed to look like this. After four years of hydroxyurea, this same patient, their spleen, the function has restored itself somewhat. Now again, this study was not powered to look at efficacy. So this is not statistically significant, but there's certainly a trend that we're seeing from this Hughes-Soft study. And just anecdotally, this is playing out as well. We're starting to hear more and more about um, splenic sequestration happening when kids are in their teens. Now typically in sickle cell disease, we see splenic sequestration because they auto-infarct their spleens at around five or six. So there are positive things about having your spleen for longer. You need your spleen to fight infections. But then the downside is you have splenic, uh, in, uh, splenic sequestration until your teens, and splenic sequestration is actually life-threatening. So the period of having that life-threatening potential event is much longer now. But I think the pluses outweigh the, the minuses. So you can actually teach families um, how to palpate spleens. The, one of the earlier slides that I showed where Jamaica's uh, um, childhood survival was 84%. That was largely because they had done a big campaign there to teach parents how to palpate spleens. So that made a huge difference in Jamaica. And we can do that here. So we teach that to our parents. Coming up with baby hug. Remember, this is the first one that we looked at efficacy. Um, we did find that giving hydroxyurea made a huge difference. So in the blue uh, is patients treated with hydroxyurea. In the red are patients who aren't treated with anything. Um, this is time, uh, weeks of treatment, and this is the cumulative incidence on the y-axis, the cumulative incidence of whatever these things are. So we see in our patients that patients who are treated with hydroxyurea, the baby hug, this is the 9 to 18 months of age patients. They had less um, acute chest, patient, uh, acute chest uh, events, less pain events, less dactylitis. Dactylitis is when you get vaso-occlusion of your digits and they swell and cause pain. Um, you can actually get auto-amputate if you're not careful with uh, dactylitis, too. Um, so less dactylitis events and less needs for transfusion. So this was huge. This is actually showing a, a very good response to um, hydroxyurea. So what do we know so far? Hydroxyurea, it reduces acute chest, it reduces pain, it reduces dactylitis, the number of transfusions. There's some pros and cons about splenic function. But the one thing we don't know about it, and the one reason that I'm asking is about stroke. And the reason I'm asking about stroke is stroke was that other pediatric thing that happens that is scary in the pediatric ages. Why do we care about stroke? It turns out that 
For sickle cell patients, this is classic hemoglobin SS patients. Down here is age on the x-axis. On the y is the proportion of patients that have not had a cerebrovascular accident. This is stroke. Look at this. At, by 20 years of age, we have 11% of our sickle cell patients have had a stroke. This is clinical, clinically overt stroke. So one out of five of our pediatric patients are having a clinically overt stroke. You don't see that in any other pediatric population. If you start including all the other sickle cell patients, and this is only a limit, uh, limited numbers of inclu inclusion because we didn't have all the details about whatever other types of sickle cell there was at that time. This number comes to about 14%. So 14% of our pediatric patients with sickle cell disease having an overt stroke. Even more scary than this is new studies when you do MRI show that by in this pediatric age group, another 20% on top of this 14% are having clinically silent strokes. Those are TIAs. Strokes are a huge deal. Uh, strokes can uh, affect people's outcomes in life and what they can actually do. So here we see um, patients with sickle cell disease. This group looked at patients with sickle cell disease, did IQ testing with them uh, to see if you had a stroke. This is a clinically uh, overt stroke. This is if your MRI showed that you had a stroke, but you had no idea you had a stroke. And these are the kids that didn't have stroke. Whatever you think about uh, IQ testing and the social biases about that, put that aside right now. The whole point is to look at what the differences are. If you have not had a stroke and you have sickle cell disease, your score is coming in around 90. If you've had a silent stroke, you've got 82.8. That's a huge difference. If you've had a clinically overt stroke, your score lowers to 70.8. That's a huge difference. And we're, this is changing their entire life course of what happens to these kids. Um, and one that I like to look at a lot here, or is fascinating and just out, uh, amazing and scary to me, is what happens to the kids with math. So this is the Woodcock-Johnson. Uh, if you didn't have a stroke, the sickle cell kids are scoring 93. If you've had a clinically overt stroke, 65. That's horrible. That's horrible. And this is something that we should be able to treat in today's day and age. We do know we can identify kids who are at higher risk for stroke. We have this thing called a transcranial Doppler. Um, it's a, a Doppler probe that you put on the, temp the temporal region, and you can actually measure the blood flow, the velocities of the middle cerebral artery. Um, it's Bernoulli's principle. So if blood is on one side of the, the vasculature and has to get to the other side of the vasculature, how fast is it traveling through? Because if it's tra that can tell you what the caliber of that vasculature is. So if it travels through faster, because all that blood needs to go through, the uh, caliber of the vasculature is smaller. That's how Bernoulli's principle works. It doesn't work for traffic. It works for everything else, though. Um, here, to do these, we actually, I've, uh, I've been working with Dr. Timothy Lukovitz. He's an adult neurologist, and he does all of our patients who have sickle cell disease to look at their middle cerebral arteries. We've been able to figure out, or this, the researchers have figured out, that we can figure out who has higher risk for stroke. This is time on the x-axis, and this is the, uh, on the y-axis is your probability of not having had a stroke. So in this situation, if you're higher, you're better, because that means you've not had a stroke. If you're lower, you're worse. Uh, we can look at velocities and figure, we, we know that if you've, your velocity of this middle cerebral artery is over 200 centimeters per second, the caliber of your middle cerebral artery or the, t the torturosity of that is pretty severe, and you're at higher risk for having a stroke. Um, so down at these numbers, over time, we're cl getting close to 45% of the patients at this velocity having strokes. That's huge. And these are the clinically overt strokes. So knowing this information, people were trying this STOP trial. This, again, another great name for our uh, 
sickle cell um, studies. The STOP trial was to see if transfusion, these patients who had a high velocity on their Dopplers, could we give them transfusions of typical blood and prevent their first stroke? And yes, we can. We can do that. So here is time in months. This is the probability of being stroke-free. So again, the higher you are here, the better off you are, because that means you didn't have a stroke. This top line is the, the patients who were treated with transfusion. This bottom line were the patients who were not treated with transfusion. They actually, NIH actually stopped this study early, after only 30 months, because it became very quickly evident that there was a huge difference. You could give patients transfusions and prevent them from having their first initial stroke. So they stopped it at 30 months. Uh, what came next was this STOP2 trial. The reason they started doing this STOP2 trial is you can imagine giving transfusions to a sickle cell patient lifelong is not really a good option. So a, a red cell, a unit of red cells actually cost the healthcare industry $2,000 to prepare that each unit of red cells. That not, that's not including like the nurses fees or your cleaning fees for where the patient sat or any of that. Um, there's also downsides to doing chronic blood transfusions. It's huge iron overload. We're getting tons of iron from that. If you give tons of iron, Eventually, over time, patients start getting cardiomyopathies, liver failure, their skin turns gray, um, they get endocrinopathies like hypothyroid, gonadal failure, all kinds of problems with um, iron overload. So there was this thing called the STOP2 trial. What if we, the question was, what if we transfuse the patients for 30 months? They chose 30 months because that's how, when they stopped the trial for the other one. That was just the number. Um, what if we transfuse them for 30 months and then stopped? Does that 30 months of transfusion allow them things to remodel or something magical to happen so that these kids will not get a stroke afterwards? Well, that turned out to not be the case, unfortunately. So these were kids who were treated for 30 months at least of transfusion. They stopped their transfusion and saw, watched what happens. And as you can see, if you didn't have transfusions, you started to have your strokes again. So they stopped this trial early too. So this puts us in a situation where now the thought is we have to transfuse these kids their entire lives. This is not a good story either. Oh. Then comes back hydroxyurea. Everybody's excited. Maybe hydroxyurea is the answer for this. Then we did this thing called the TWITCH trial. Uh, and then the SWITCH trial, and we'll talk about these. The TWITCH trial, this was looking at patients before they've had a stroke, do their transcranial Doppler. Um, if they are turned in to, uh, by transcranial Doppler, appear to be at high risk for having a stroke, let's transfuse them for 30 months because that's what the studies previously had done. And then let's switch them over to hydroxyurea and let's see if we can keep their transcranial Doppler velocities in the normal range. So this did not look at stroke. This just looked at does hydroxyurea lower the transcranial Doppler velocities the same as red cell transfusion does? And yes, it did. So they stopped this trial early too because those, those studies became very clear. So everyone's all excited. We can use hydroxyurea, lower those transcranial Doppler score, uh, the transcranial Doppler velocities, and maybe we can prevent their strokes. Then we did this switch trial, and the, our hopes were blown out of the water here. So the switch trial was um, strokes with trans transfusions, then changing to hydroxyurea. So these are patients who already had a stroke. So again, it's not really the same patient population, but we do the best extrapolations we can based on what patients we can recruit. So these patients already had strokes. They got treated for 30 months with transfusions to prevent a second stroke. And then they got some arm of them kept going with transfusions, some other arm switched to hydroxyurea. And unfortunately, this trial was stopped early as well because the, ki the kids who were switched to hydroxyurea started having their strokes again. So even though you can reduce the velocity with 
the hydroxyurea, we couldn't prevent the stroke with hydroxyurea. The, another bummer piece that came out of this is that we were actually not making any difference with transfusion or hydroxyurea to the clinically silent, the TIAs. So both of those, the, both groups were still having TIAs that we were not able to do anything about. And again, remember that does cause IQ issues down the road. So just to recap where we are before we move on, um, we know that hydroxyurea reduces acute chest, dactylitis pain, transfusion, it's, it's probably beneficial for the splenic um, pr preservation, splenic function preservation. We just talked about t transcranial Dopplers and hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea is great because we can reduce the velocities, but hydroxyurea doesn't reduce stroke risk. What we don't know, yep. There was no control group that wasn't getting hydroxyurea. No, they just used historical controls. So that's why they're concluding Right. And actually, if you look at the historical controls, and I didn't mention that, historical controls, they were the same. Oh, it's not statistically different. So hydroxyurea will reduce the velocities. It won't reduce the risk of clinically overt strokes. It does nothing to stop um, the silent strokes, but neither does transfusion. Uh, what we don't know is what are we doing with hydroxyurea now? So now we see a patient. We, see, we try to start all our sickle cell patients early on hydroxyurea. Are we masking the potential that, you know, we're lowering their stroke, the velocities on the transcranial Dopplers? Are we masking something? We have no idea. You know, we could be masking that they're truly at risk for stroke somewhere down the road. Because I'm sure their transcranial Doppler velocity at age two cannot possibly, it's probably not the same all the way until they're 16. Um, there's probably some differences along the way. And we're just going to have to see what happens with that. So now we're still stuck with using transfusions to reduce the stroke risk. And we're still stuck with iron overload. So where are we today? So the patients that I have today, I have two, I'll just tell you two quick patients. One of them that we're giving transfusions to, he's from the Congo. He came over when he was six years of age, five years of age, so we've known him for a year. Um, he was perfectly fine, according to his parents, when he was in the Congo. Nothing was ever wrong with him. He never went to the hospital. No infections, no nothing. Then he comes here. His PCP screens him for sickle cell disease. Yes, he's got sickle cell disease, which the family couldn't believe because he'd been so healthy. Um, we start doing all the baseline studies for him. Uh, I want to get this kid on hydroxyurea. And the family is like, there's no way you're putting my kid on hydroxyurea. You're only telling me five years ago that it started working. And that's when my kid was born. So they don't want to do that. In the meantime, I'm doing these baseline studies. We do urine studies. He's got hematuria, proteinuria. He now sees debmatosian. Um, I check his thyroid. He's got hypothyroid. He sees endocrinology down in Bedford. Uh, he's got asthma. He's seeing the lung person. And I did his transcranial Doppler, and he's got a velocity of 220, which is well over that 200 threshold. So now he's being transfused all the time. That's a problem. Then we have another kid uh, who also um, is 10 years of age now. She's half Nigerian, half from the United States. Uh, had 20-plus hospitalizations in the first four years of her life. That's a lot. Um, Ten years ago, or actually it was probably eight, nine, eight, seven, eight years ago, I wanted them to start hydroxyurea because this just the repeated amounts of uh, hospitalizations. And the family was like, you're telling me they only figured out two years ago that hydroxyurea was safe to give to my kid. Uh-uh. I'm not starting it. So then uh, after about the 20-something hospitalization, they agreed. Since that time, this child has only been inpatient probably once or twice a year. So huge difference in 10 years. But that's the story of the infants who were born six, ten years ago. What about if you're born today? Lots of things are happening. Uh, there is now the NHLBI, the National Institutes of Health, the Heart, Lung, Blood Institute, came out in 2014 with um, 
evidence-based management of sickle cell disease. It's called an expert panel report, and they're using evidence. But if you look through the report, we don't really have that much evidence. There's lots of weak recommendations. There's lots of low-quality evidence. But it's the best that we've got right now. So what are they saying that we should be doing? Well, when kids are born, everyone should be started on penicillin or moxicillin prophylaxis. How long do we keep doing that? Now we think it might be forever. It used to be that we thought that you would do it up until age five. But it turns out, why are we stopping at age five? The surgeons, if you take out their spleen, we're doing them forever. Is there really any difference if you auto-infarct your spleen versus taking it out? Not really. So if you look here, you might not be able to read it. Discontinuation is actually considered a very weak recommendation. So now we're just doing it forever, at least for the patients who are compliant. There's a blurb of using hydroxyurea. It is not a, a hardcore recommendation because of all the problems in the U.S. in terms of pharmaceutical getting the appropriate dosage. It only comes in that 500 milligram capsule. We can't get it for all of our patients. So they can't make that hardcore recommendation, and we can't force all the states to pay for the compounding. So the NIH just kind of backed away from that, saying try to use it if you can, um, and that's about it. Vaccinations, there's recommendations now for the meningococcal and pneumococcal uh, vaccinations starting at age two with boosters every five years. Transcranial Dopplers annually until from age two to about mid-teens. We stop in the mid-teens because at that point the skull bones become so hard that you can't actually see through them to get the uh, middle cerebral artery velocities. They talk about echoes and PFTs, but again, it's a soft recommendation, not hardcore. They talk about annual retinal exams to look for retinopathies that are caused by sickle cell disease. They talk about UAs for potinuria started at age 10. I actually do these on the kids as soon as they're potty trained. And as, I, as you saw with that kid from, who was from Congo, at age 6, he's already having potinuria. Avoiding estrogens because these patients are uh, at higher risk for thrombosis because of their higher platelet counts and just higher inflammatory responses in general. And then the one thing that came out in this was preoperative transfusion. A preoperative transfusion, we talked about transfusion, it's great for stroke. It turns out that preoperative transfusion is also great to prevent sickle cell disease when you have anesthesia. Um, this is the TAP study, transfusion alternatives, so uh, in patients with sickle cell disease. This was done in, in the UK, where they have a much better way to collect data in general. Um, and although the numbers are small, this number, they looked at about 300 plus patients. They weeded out everybody who they considered to be at high risk for surgery. So the only patients that were randomized ultimately were the very, very low risk patients. So these are, these included children too. So this is like your tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. This is a, you know, a brief anesthesia for metaport placement or whatever you needed it for. It turns out that the kids who had transfusions, preoperative transfusions, had much less complications. This is serious adverse effects, events. Um, but in general, just the numbers all the way down the road here, if you had a preoperative transfusion, much less chance of having a, a serious adverse event happening during your anesthesia or during your surgery compared to patients who did not get transfused. So this is a huge difference, 3%, 30%. So now we recommend that all patients who have any anesthesia, for whatever reason, get some kind of um, transfusion beforehand. And this is, again, in those NIH guidelines as well. Uh, getting transfusions for these kids now is becoming more complicated. Before we didn't give any hydroxyurea, we could just transfuse them up to a hemoglobin of 11 because their baselines were, before hydroxyurea, their baselines were 6, 7 maybe. Um, and now we're giving hydroxyurea. So now we're boosting up their hemoglobins to like 10. We don't have any room to top them off with a transfusion anymore. So now we're stuck doing more exchange transfusions, which brings a whole other set of problems. So 
in our institutions, because of all the shifts in calcium and volume shifts, our patients have to go to the intensive care unit to get their exchange transfusion done. Um, we will often do this a week before they have surgery if we know that an elective surgery is coming up. Uh, if we don't ha have time for that because it's emergency surgery, we obviously try to do it as soon as we can and then do the surgery right afterwards, but sometimes, you know, we're scrambling. So I've told you that we're, you can look to these guidelines to see what to do for your sickle cell patients. Uh, with these guidelines and the hydroxyurea transfusions, life is improving for our sickle cell patients, and the, the life expectancy is still going up, and I think it's going to still keep going up. Um, there's some things that are happening that I think are going to make this go up. Uh, we are now having, we have something called the RUSH um, study. This is a registry and surveillance study. This was actually only funded for three years. But believe it or not, in 2010, this is 2010, this is the first sickle cell registry in the United States. This is 2010. Let's get with it, folks. You know, this is late. Um, but I'm hoping from this study we can learn a lot of things about our clinical care from these, these patients. Uh, the other studies had only looked at sickle cell hemoglobin SS, the classic sickle cell patients, but I'm hoping maybe from this RUSH studies we can get information about the other um, variants of sickle cell disease. I'm hoping we can learn more about these long-term effects, better screening techniques, um, management of complications like acute chest syndrome. There's still no 100% gold standard way of managing acute chest except for to exchange the patient so you can get rid of some of their sickle hemoglobin. There's all this, also this question about what can we do co for these patients who have had a stroke or prevent strokes? Is there something like cognitive rehabilitation that we can do or preventive cognitive stuff that we could do to help those, um, those kids perform as well as their counterparts who haven't had a stroke? There's some bench work being done about um, genetic modulation of sickle cell disease. So we know that some patients with sickle cell disease, they may have the same hemoglobin SS disease, but some kids will have um, more stroke, be at higher risk for stroke, and why is that? Maybe it's these modulations. Um, some of them may have more pain. Um, they have all different kinds of complications, even though genetically they all have hemoglobin SS disease or whatever disease that they have. There's certainly studies ongoing about pathophysiology, drug development. There's drug development studies to see what we can do to reduce the polymerization of those sickle cells so they sickle less. There's also a lot of studies going on to try to use old drugs in new ways. Uh, to see if that might help. Just like hydroxyurea was originally um, meant to be treat for treatment of leukemia, we've used it in a new way. One of the things that I'm pretty excited about is Children's Hospital of Cincinnati is actually doing a gene transfer study. So it's a children's hospital. They're doing their gene transfer studies on adults, though, and it's just getting started. They're going to try to put a hemoglobin F uh, gene into a lentivirus and see if you can stimulate more hemoglobin F production in these patients. And then there's a lot of research being done on stem cell and bone marrow transplant. So actually stem cell and bone marrow transplant is actually curative of sickle cell disease. So if people ask, there is a cure. It is a pretty extreme way to get a cure though. So it's not for everyone. Even though we're doing all these great things in the U.S. and our developed countries, I think there's still a lot to be learned from our medically underserved areas um, where the, the the global burden of sickle cell disease is, it would be really interesting, and it's something that we talk about at the New, the New England Pediatric Sickle Cell Consortium meetings. Why is it that there's, I mean, 10% of kids in Africa surviving is a dismal number, but what, are, what about these 10% kids who are actually surviving? I mean, there must be something different about those 10% of kids who are surviving. And another thing we talk about at these conferences is the kids who tend to be a little bit older when they emigrate from their sub-Saharan country to here, 
we never hear about them. They never call us with pain crises. I mean, they still come in with acute chest and infections and stuff, but they never call with pain. Now, is this a cultural reason why the family just is like, okay, you can live with this pain, or the kid has learned to live with this pain, but maybe they don't really have as much pain as the kids who are born here. We don't know. That's an area where I think we can tap into some, um, learn some things from. So, I've got about three minutes left, and so hopefully we'll use this time for discussion. Um, I'm hoping that you got from out of this talk a quick review. You understood that there, things are improving, that there's changes in management, and that for the future, these kids are having a much better outlook. The other thing I want to point out is the timing of this talk was pretty good because this month is Sickle Cell Awareness Month. So I'm ready for any questions. expand a little bit on the stem cell transplant aspect of this because when you, so from what I've uh, come to understand if you compare the cost of a stem cell transplant and the uh, you know, quality of life afterwards I mean the, the treatments are much much more benign than well, no. So the, the, the use of stem cell transplant is now for specific indications. So things like stroke. Because of the treatment for stroke, lots of transfusions leads to lots of problems down the road. So if you're, you're a patient that has had frequent strokes and you're a kid, you could do a stem cell transplant. Yeah, it's a rough start to get over that initial hurdle. But if you do fine, you don't have the problems anymore down the road of iron overload. You know, treating iron overload with chelators is about $35,000 a year. So over time, um, this is probably even up. Um, and then you don't have pain, you don't have all those other things. So you could actually cure them with a stem cell transplant or bone marrow transplant. The, one of the problems right now is you actually need a matched sibling donor. We're not doing it so much on if you, an un, unrelated donor, although there's a lot of research going on about that. So when you identify kids with SE who don't have um, issues until they're out of the pediatric population, are there things you can do now? Do you yes. So I still see the SE patients. We have a, several, we have a couple SE patients that I see them once a year, primarily because I know that as they hit the older adolescent ages, that's when they're going to ha start having problems. And I want to establish a relationship with them while they're younger and also start their education when they're younger because I don't want them to go through life thinking that they're going to be fine um, down the road. I mean, they need to know that they have sickle cell disease. So even for the SE patients, I do try to get them on splenic prophylaxis with the penicillin. So that's something that I need to see them for still. And also want to send them to the camps so they can learn about sickle cell disease because they're going to have the same complications when they're 30 as somebody else who had sickle cell SS disease. And is there benefit to starting them on hydroxyurea? We don't know because those studies have all been done on the um, SS patients. And I've been... So there's no conclusive way to deal with the patients who aren't the SS patients. I've started the SD patients who we have in our population because we've figured out anecdotally that they're as severe in childhood as the SS patients. But the kids who are doing fine that are SE, I haven't started them. Um, and even the other kids like who are you know, SC, if they're doing fine right now, I haven't started them either. But we don't really know what to do with that because the studies didn't include those patients. Terry? kind of an anecdotal diagnostic thing. So the transcranial Doppler works great in the infants where the bone is thinner, but you could actually do carotid ultrasound mm -hmm. in you older kids that you couldn't visualize. Right, and that, the adults Basically do... Basically the same velocities, greater than 200 is 
significant for stroke in our adult population. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got those same numbers here. It was just extrapolation. And my guess is that we'll end up doing that. We just haven't. That was done in 1999. So we're kind of watching these kids grow up. Julie, I'm wondering, um, you mentioned that the registry was only available for three years or the research funding was only there for three years. It seems like in today's day and age, that's a no-brainer to have a registry for something like sickle, which is no kidding. easy to define, <laughs> easy to measure. There are centers across the country. Is there movement across you know, the hematology world? To get yep, so the, one of the problems with sickle cell disease, you know, I, I look at CF as an example. So CF, 30,000 patients, but they have way more funding um, they're just a lot, they've been advocating for themselves a, in a lot better way than the sickle cell population has, and even just private funding to do all these studies. Sickle cell, if you look at the number of patients of sickle cell versus um, CF, the difference in funding per patient is about 1,000 to like 8,000. Um, it, it's, I think that's a, a, something that the sickle cell world is working on, is trying to raise awareness, hence this Awareness Week, and see what we can do in terms of fundraising. It's a problem. Not to mention, not to mention, no hydroxyurea for. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. That's a call to action. Thank you.